Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to come together and not only learn about you, but Lord, uh, be impacted by your character and be changed by the fact that you are God who is sitting and established on his throne. Father, may our hearts be receptive. Lord, may our minds uh, give us understanding so that we can comprehend you to the degree that we can. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would be honored in not only our thoughts, but our heart's attitude. And uh, as we come before you this morning, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I remember looking back on my life as a young Christian believer. I came to Christ at the age of 19 and um, shortly after that, within a few years, thought I had the world figured out, uh, thought I had God figured out just in my pride. And um, the, it's sort of like Christianity, it's sort of like the Apostle Paul, when the closer he got to God, the more he saw of himself, and he could say, I'm the chief of sinners. There's a similar thing that happens with just your understanding of who God is. The, the more you learn about God, not only should it humble you, but it also exposes how little we truly understand. Um, and so if there's theological pride, um, you're probably not understanding God for who he is accurately. Uh, and no doctrine exposes our finiteness than the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, <clears throat> it is a it is one of the more challenging doctrines, um, and many, we're going to look at just as a as kind of a starting point, many claim that the doctrine of the Trinity uh, is not biblical. You have people we mentioned last week, the Jehovah's Witnesses, that teach that Jesus was a created being. Uh, many academic um, professors and, and Bible students who have been overly influenced by the Enlightenment, would claim that Jesus is just a good example for us to follow. One Unitarian theologian writes that the doctrine of the Trinity was, quote, foisted into the church during the third and fourth centuries. Um, <clears throat> so again, just denying that that is a biblical teaching. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the book that was popular several years ago called The Da Vinci Code. Uh, in that book, Dan Brown uses one of his characters uh, to allege, quote, Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, and it was a relatively close vote at that. Um, both statements are false. It was not a close, quote, close vote, and it was not officially proposed at the, uh, first at the Council of Nicaea. We're going to look at today the fact that the church has always seen these truths in Scripture. Uh, many today, from Muslims to Jehovah's Witnesses to Mormons to uh, Unitarians, deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And essential to that denial, and in every case you see there's a similarity, an equal denial of the deity of Christ. And that's the real point of the matter. Um, so their denial of the Trinity carries with it the underlying real root of the issue, and that is the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, their arguments on, for all of those groups largely hinge on the claim that the concept of the Trinity was invented by the church in the 4th century. So, today, 
when we leave, if you're not already convinced, I'm sure everybody in here is convinced, but you will have uh, ample um, information to recognize that those claims are completely false. Uh, any truth or any doctrinal truth that we hold to is established how? What's the ground of our belief? The Bible. So, <clears throat> we looked at last week, we looked at all of the church councils. Essentially, we're looking at church history. This is a class on church history, and church history is, is very helpful and extremely important for us to study. Um, however, the truth of a doctrine is not based on church history, church councils. Um, the truth is always based in Scripture alone. Uh, for those of us who hold to the Reformation principle of Scripture, sola scriptura, the Bible alone is our authority. And so we look to the Bible first, foremost, and last for our doctrine, doctrinal beliefs, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to spend uh, the first half of the class, probably the majority of the class, looking at what the Bible teaches. So you'll see on your handout... The first side is on basically what Bible teaches, the, the back side of the page. I, I've given you uh, quotes from the early church fathers on the same truths. And what you see is that Scripture clearly teaches uh, the concept of the Trinity. Um, they are right in saying that the Trinity, the word Trinity, you don't see that in the Bible, but the concept is clearly taught in the Bible. Um, and so that's what we're going to look at first. But you, you, on the back side, basically, what we're going to see is that all, all of the church fathers saw these things taught in Scripture. And so what they're doing in the church councils is they're responding to heresy. So you have guys like Arius who's claiming that, that Jesus was not fully God, that he was a created being. And then they respond to these false teachings uh, that are in the church, and then they formulate these creeds based on what they're seeing in Scripture. So um, that's sort of my Sunday school lesson right there in a nutshell. Uh, let's look at the fundamental realities of Scripture. <clears throat> Two fundamental truths of Scripture. The first one is there is one true God. There's one true God. How many of you have kids in Adventure Club. Yeah. Um, my kids, my, my, my kids, my daughter came home and she had a memory verse. Did y'all work on your memory verse this week? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Did, did y'all memorize it with your kid? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, so yeah, two fundamental truths, realities of Scripture uh, number one, there is one true God, and Deuteronomy 6.4 is the primary passage that you see in the Bible um, regarding the one true God. Uh, Christianity sees in the Bible, that, and it doesn't change this teaching, and it's true for the Old Testament, it's true for the New Testament, and I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the Old Testament because I think that's fairly well established, but uh, if you would, turn to Isaiah 45. I want to look at a couple of passages. <clears throat> then we'll go to the New Testament. Isaiah 
Isaiah 45, verse 5 and 6. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The Lord our God is one. And then if you'll, in that same chapter, verses 21, declare and present your, present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, the righteous God and Savior? There is none besides me. Uh, the, the Old Testament over and over affirms the fact that God is one. There is only one true God. And we could, we're just scratching the surface. Um, the, the verses that I'm giving you, both the Old and the New, are, there are so many more we could look at. We'll skip over Isaiah 46.9. Although that, you, well, let's go ahead and look there. It's right here. Uh, it says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God. Uh, so not only in the Old Testament, but look at Mark 12. We're going to see the New Testament also teaches that there is one God. Mark 12, verse 28. It says that one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, talking about Jesus, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? It's a good question. Jesus said the most important is, and what is he quoting here? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus goes back to the, the main passage for the character of God in the Old Testament as far as him being one, and he quotes that, and he goes on to say that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and all of your strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor. But the main point Jesus is affirming here is that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus did not deny that there was one God. Uh, Paul in Second Timothy or First Timothy two five. First Timothy two five. Paul writes that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Again, for there is one God. Uh, Paul recognizes that. Um, James 2.19, you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. James says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So over and over and over, you see, and again, we're just scratching the surface on this, uh, that the, 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 the belief in one God is consistent throughout Scripture. So the main biblical fundamental teaching of Scripture is that there is one true God. Secondly, God is triune. The Bible teaches that the Father is God. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1.3. And again, I'm, I'm going to give you a lot of verses, but there are so many more we could look at. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the fact that the Father is God. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. So again, the Father is God. 
Um, you could see, I think I have in your notes. Do I have Matthew 6, 9 in your notes? No? Uh, write down Matthew 6, 9. You can look at these later if you're interested. John 17, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. All of those talk about the fact that the Father is God. So the real question is, and really what underlies the denial of the Trinity in a lot of these, with a lot of the uh, heresies and false beliefs, is the fact that Jesus is God. That's the real problem for most people who deny the Trinity. So let's look at the Son. Two truths. Um, and you can see on the, the, the diagram here, a representation of, of what the Trinity is. You have God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but notice the lines connecting them. The Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Son, the Spirit is not the Father, and vice versa. So that is basically the teaching of the Trinity. Um, that's what we see in the Bible, so we're going to kind of look at those. So the Son is God, Isaiah 9, 6, uh, and again, I'm using some Old Testament passages. So there is an element where revelation is progressive, right? There's an Old Testament understanding of who God is, but then we get a, a, a little bit of more of a fuller picture of that in the New Testament. Um, but there are glimpses of, and I remember the several weeks ago when I started this, um, I asked the question at the beginning, you know, what verses can you come up with about the Trinity or about the, the fact that the Trinity is true? And several of those passages, if you remember, were from the Old Testament. So there are passages that, that indicate it's not a, it's not a, a well, uh, clearly defined picture of the Trinity, but there are passages that would point to the Trinity. Uh, one of those is Isaiah 9, 6. Um, and that is, uh, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. So, there is going to be a son that will be given, and his name will be Mighty God. Um, also, if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 45, just as a... Another indication, and a, a lot of these uh, obviously aren't as clear. However, in the New Testament, we get a fuller picture of some of these passages. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. I should have written these in my notes. So the psalmist writes, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, if you would, hold your finger there and then flip over to Revelation. I'm sorry. I'm looking at Revelation. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1.8 quotes this psalm, these verses in Psalm 45, and applies them to Christ. He says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Uh, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So 
the writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 45 and applies those passages to Christ. Also, we see that Jesus is God. Probably one of the more clear passages is John chapter 1. Um, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So again, Jesus is God in John 1 2 because he was God. The Word was God. Um, John 20, verses 28. Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting passage too because you have at the end of John, if you think about the context of John, and we're in cha- go to chapter 20, verse 28. Let me read this and then I'll, I'll comment on it. This is the whole passage where Jesus encounters, I'm sorry, Thomas encounters Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, and, you know, Thomas is doubting. Uh, and he says, unless I can, you know, put my hands in his wounds, unless I can see him. Basically, unless I can experience Jesus, then I won't believe. And it says, eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas is experiencing the resurrected Lord physically, personally. And Thomas says, and Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas identifies Jesus as God. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Uh, In fact, Jesus basically encourages and wants other people to have that same faith. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and, and yet have believed. Now, right after this, John writes, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, Uh, but things that are written so that many may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So this is sort of a purpose statement that John includes in the book of John, and it's right on the heels of Peter's affirming that Jesus is God. And so John is essentially, not only do you have Jesus affirming Thomas's statement, but John is affirming it too and saying, this is the purpose that I've written this book for so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, i.e. Jesus is God. Um, Titus 2.13, Paul writes, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's not only our Savior, he is our great God. Second uh, Peter 1.1 1, 1 speaks of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, not only our Savior, but our God. Uh, Romans 9.5, speaking of the Jewish people, uh, Paul says, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed. Amen. Blessed forever. Amen. So, again, the whole uh, teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus is God. Not only is the Father God, but Jesus is God. However, Jesus is not equal. 
He is distinct from the Father. So that's why you have the line, Jesus is not the Father. Um, really, what, you're, what we're going to look at next is uh, interactions between when we look at the, that the Son is not the Father we're, and when we look at the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, we're, what we're looking at is interactions between these distinct persons. And so um, if you think about the fact, and we're, we're going to look at this a little bit later, but one of the false claims or false ways of understanding the Trinity is called modalism. Um, and again, we're going to look at it. I'm not going to go into detail now, but basically modalism says that there's only one person. He's just acting in different ways. Um, it's in a, the analogy that's commonly used is I'm a father, but I'm also a son and a husband, but it's still same. It's just me. I'm the same person and I'm functioning in those three different ways. Uh, so that's modalism. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, what we're pointing out when we say that, that the son is not the father is we're saying that they are distinct. They are different persons. So Matthew 22, turn here because this will be the main one we look at. Verses 41 through 46. It says, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, Jesus' point is that the Messiah is God. But there's also an interesting um, conversation, if you will, that's happening here. The Lord said to my Lord, there's two people here, uh, sit at my right hand. So the Father, speaking to the Son, says, sit at my right hand. And, uh, and he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1 here. Um, but we also see, if you would, and you don't need to turn back here, you probably have this, but in John... We looked at John 1. We go back there to show a distinction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So the Word was God, but the Word was with God. So they're different people, different persons. Um, and I keep saying person. I'm going to comment about that in a little bit, too. Um, 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, if, if there's not three distinct persons, that verse doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So you have Christ is the advocate with the Father. If, if they're really the same person, there's no need for an advocate. He's advocating with himself. Um, you also have passages where Jesus prays to the Father. If they're the same person, why would Jesus need to pray to the Father? So again, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is not the Father. Secondly, or I guess thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God. 
We're going to look at some Trinitarian passages here in just a minute. Um, But if we understand those when we come to those, those are passages that identify all three persons of the Trinity in in a single passage. And in all of those instances where you have the Father and the Son, you also have the Holy Spirit. If we understand that the Father is God and that the Son is God, then all of those passages also assume that the Spirit is God. Um, But let's look at some more specific references. Probably the best one is in Acts chapter 5. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, You'll remember, let me back up. I'll start in verse 1 just to give us some context. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. So Peter is saying, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he says, you've lied to God. Um, So the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is also identified as God. You'll see that in... Uh, also in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Another way we see the Holy Spirit as being identified as God is divine attributes are applied to the Spirit. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. So all of these divine attributes, all of the attributes that God possesses, the Holy Spirit also possesses. You can see that. You can write this down too, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, where Paul does attribute divine attributes to the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit is God, but He is not the Father or the Son. And again, some of these passages don't really make sense if it's the same person doing different jobs. So, for example, we see in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Well, let me back up to 15. Uh, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, uh, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So again, you have... uh, Do I have this as a Trinitarian passage? I don't. Uh, So you have all three members of the Trinity present here. So Jesus is saying he'll pray to the Father, he'll ask the Father, and then he'll send a helper to you. Um, And that helper, paraclete, is identified as the Spirit. Also in verse 26, uh, these things, verse 25, I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so you see, again, the Holy Spirit's going to be sent. He's God, but he's also a distinct person. Um, you see that fulfillment happen at the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, I'm not sure. Let's see, Romans. Let's skip John 16, 7. 
Uh, go, go ahead and turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, 27. Paul here writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us. I'm in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts. Uh, he searches hearts, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Again, you have the Spirit working independently. Uh, in a unified way, not independently in a way that's not unified, but he's working distinctly from the Father and the Son. And Lord willing, next week, uh, we're going to spend a little more time, so uh, just a brief little uh, brief comment on where we're going. Next week, we're going to look at some key theologians. Um, but one of the theologians we're going to look at really deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I'm saving the importance of this doctrine for next week. Um, I wanted to do a section on why this is important. Uh, so I'm going to save that for next week because I think it fits in well with one of the key theologians. Um, okay, Trinitarian passages. These are really important because what they demonstrate is they, there's one passage where you have all three members of the Trinity mentioned in a passage and even shown working in different ways. So you see the, the, uh, the distinctness of the three persons, but you also see the fact that they're all identified in some way as being God. So Matthew 3.16, uh, this is the first one, and this is Jesus' baptism. But notice how it describes what's happening at Jesus' baptism. Um, we will start in verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he consented, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You have the Father in heaven proclaiming uh, that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, affirming Jesus, His Son. So you have the Father, the Son, and then you also have the Spirit. So the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, also at the end of Matthew, this is another familiar passage. This is the baptism formula, or where we get our baptism formula. <laughs> Uh, this is the Great Commission. Let me start in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So go and teach, make disciples, and baptize them. One of the primary church ordinances. And when you baptize them, you are to do it in the name the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have all three members of the Trinity, all of them are God, and all of them we are to baptize in all of their names, showing the distinctness of the three. Second Corinthians 13, verse 14. The very last verse, um, Paul ends the book this way, saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, all three members of the Trinity. You see that in First Peter, if you would turn over there quickly. And again, there, there are so many uh, uh, passages that, I just couldn't include. Um, again, we're just scratching the surface. First uh, Peter 1, 2. Um, let me just read from verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ be sprinkled by his blood. Again, all three members of the Trinity. You see that in Jude verses 20 and 21, but we won't go there for the sake of time. So again, um, oh, goodness, I missed my, there you go. Sorry about that. I spent a lot of time on this one too. Um, so those are the Trinitarian passages. Uh, it is clear the Bible teaches the Trinity it's clear in the New Testament that all three persons of the Trinity are God, and, and yet they are not identical to each other. They are three distinct persons. Summary of this doctrine. I've taken this from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He summarizes this doctrine this way, or defines it this way. God eternally exists as three persons. So again, what he's doing is he's taking what the Bible is taught and he's putting it in a, in a succinct statement. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God and there is one God. So three persons, one God. So the three main points of this, God is three persons, each person is fully God, there's only one God. John Frame, in his, uh, one of his works on systematic theology, um, I, believe it, I believe I got this from Salvation Belongs to the Lord, uh, but he adds two elements that Grudem doesn't have. He adds each person is distinct from the others, which I think we can see that in Scripture, and that the three persons are related eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, uh, so... Before I, I continue on into the errors 
that we should avoid. Let me make a couple of comments about the, the fact that there's one God, three persons. Uh, the word person, like Trinity, was adopted by the church uh, in order to indicate that God is one, yet God is three. Um, God is one, and the word that we saw, and I don't think I had this, the word that we saw in the Nicene Creed uh, is the Greek word homoousios, uh, which is they are the, the same substance. So they, there is unity, there's one God, but each member is of the same substance. So in other words, all three uh, members of the Trinity are God. They're equal. Yet, they are distinct persons. Tertullian was the first one to use the word. He used the Latin word persona. Person is just an English translation of that. Uh, but persona is a translation of the Greek word hypostasis. Um, now, we're a little bit beyond my pay grade at this point. Um, <laughs> so let me leave you uh, with a quote from John Frame. He, he writes this, per, The word person is a trickier term. Theologians have tried to understand it in different ways. But after all is said and done, you probably can't do better than to think of God's three persons as similar to, analogous to, three human persons. Um, they're, they are distinct, they have personality, and they function um, you know, they each have a role to do in, in God's great plan of salvation, which we're going to look at next week. Um, yeah, I think it's important just to be reminded at this point that God is unfathomable. We cannot understand God. If, if you're scratching your head at this doctrine, you should. Um, you cannot understand this. But that doesn't mean, as many claim, that it's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's a mystery. In other words, it's not nonsense. It's beyond our capacity to understand. We have no reference point for this. Um, and so... There is a mysterious element to it because God is way beyond our ability to comprehend. We are finite. We are fallen. We are sinful. We can't understand a holy, righteous, infinite God. And so we're seeing these truths in Scripture and we're doing our best to understand them. And the church has done that, I think, throughout, and I think accurately. So, um, if you're interested in the difference between mystery and contradiction, R.C. Sproul has a great lecture on that. If you're interested, you can come to me afterwards. I'll tell you how to get to it. Uh, but he explains why the Trinity is not a contradiction. It's a mystery, and there's a huge difference there. Um, let me give you one more quote before I move on to errors. Uh, this is from John Hanna. John Hanna is a pretty well-known church historian. He writes this, referring to the claim that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. He says, quote, The concept of the Trinity is present throughout the Holy Scriptures, which we've seen that. 
Nowhere is the absolute deity denied in the... Uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. Nowhere is the absolute deity of Christ denied in the Bible except by false teachers. So, again, notice how he connects the deity of Christ and the Trinity. And that's always key because everyone who denies the Trinity also denies the deity of Christ. So, what are the errors that we need to be careful of or are careful to avoid? Um, modalism. Uh, this, this came early in church history, I think in the third century. Uh, basically, what modalism teaches is that one person who appears to us in three different forms, kind of what I was talking about with I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a husband, and I'm a father, um, that's, and there's different sort of different ways to formulate the modalistic, uh, concept, but modalism has been rejected from way early in the church as heresy. Um, it's clearly unbiblical because what we see, what we've already seen is that the three persons of the Trinity, they interact, there's transactions with one another. And so it's, they, those passages make no sense if you think of God in terms of a modalistic approach. It denies the personal relationships within the Trinity, um, that those are just illusions. So we looked at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, you think about where Jesus prays to the Father, all of those would be illusions. They're not genuine um, inter, inter, interactions or, or exchanges between two different people. Um, also, this misses the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. Um, the, God, the, fact, the fact that God sent his son as a substitutionary sacrifice, that the son bore the wrath of God in our place, and that the father saw the suffering of Christ and was satisfied. Um, the modalistic approach... Uh, that whole, the whole redemption process, the, the master plan of God doesn't make, really make sense. And by the way, Isaiah 53, 11 is uh, helpful because it talks about the fact that the father saw, it doesn't say father, but God saw the suffering and was satisfied. Our sins have been atoned for by Christ and the, by Jesus Christ, the son and the father was satisfied. So, uh, modalism has been rejected as heresy. Um, secondly, Arianism. Uh, this goes back to a couple weeks ago. Arius believed and taught that Jesus was at one point created. Uh, he really hones in on Colossians 1.15 and, and misinterprets it, uh, where it says that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, so Jesus at one point was created, uh, according to Arius, yes, he was created first, and so he has preeminence over the rest of creation, but he's still a part of creation, and therefore he is not equal with the Father. Um, and so you, I, I did actually have, I just saw this, the, the uh, council, I did put the Nicene Creed in here. Uh, but, but notice the language of the Nicene Creed. You'll remember this from a couple weeks ago. They were very careful uh, to say that Jesus was begotten, not made. So the equality of the Son and the Father are key. 
in the Nicene Creed. Arius was condemned um, as a heretic, and really, the church from the Council of Nicaea up until probably the Enlightenment, if I'm not mistaken, all of the church different, the Catholic church, the, the Orthodox church, um, all of the churches agree on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, there's no argument over this. Um, okay, early church affirmation. I am almost out of time. Um, you, I, I basically put all the quotes in here so you can peruse this at your own interest and uh, availability. Um, if you need some good material to help you go to sleep at night, uh, you can take a look at this. I even included where they came from, so if you want to do further research. Uh, let me just give you a couple of quotes. Again, from John Hanna. He makes this remark about the teachings and creeds of the early church. He says these were explanations of, not errant additions to what the Bible teaches. Again, I think that's important for us to remember. We are mining the, the riches of what the Bible teaches. And the church creeds, what we're looking at when we look at the creeds, it's not as though we are saying this is authoritative because the creed said so. We're, this is authoritative because the Bible teaches this. The creed just affirms what the Bible teaches. And so don't, don't take me to a creed to demonstrate the truth of a doctrine. Take me to the Bible to demonstrate. And the creeds, the purpose of the creeds are just to affirm what the Bible clearly teaches. And that's, that's what we see. Greg Allison writes in uh, his historical theology, the early church was faced with both belief in monotheism and belief in the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, kind of what we went back to with the fundamental truths. Uh, and then he writes, what would later be called Trinitarianism, and the early church affirmed both. Um, so again, the, the church is just affirming what the Bible teaches. Um, Again, you can, I kind of laid out this the same way. By the way, I am hugely indebted to Nathan Busnitz for my outline. I didn't use, I didn't copy his verbatim, uh, but I definitely used the rough structure and then kind of filled it in. Um, and his, uh, is it church history? It may be, I think it's his church history. Um, basically, there's one true God. Uh, you, and I've listed like Clement of Rome. By the way, uh, you'll notice in parentheses, Clement of Rome died circa uh, sometime around 99. So think about the time period. Clement would have had interaction with the apostles and with people closely related to the apostles. And he's affirming uh, that there's one true, true God. And you're going to see the same people over and over um, so the early church believed that there was one true God. They didn't believe in, in three gods. They believed in one God. Um, and you can look at the rest of these. But look at number two. God is triune. The Father is God. Again, there's not a whole lot of question regarding that. Uh, the Son is God. Uh, the early church fathers all ag agreed on this. 
I mean, it's clear from the Bible that Jesus is God. Uh, so you have Ignatius of Antioch. Again, notice his, his life, circa 50 to 117 A.D. Again, there would have been overlap with the apostles there, or some of the apostles. He says, For our God, Jesus Christ, was according to the appointment of God, conceived in the womb by Mary, of the seed of David, by the Holy Ghost. Um, Jesus is God, and he even recognizes the Holy Spirit and references him here. Um, by the way, Ignatius wrote a lot of different epistles and then repeatedly refers to Jesus Christ as God. Uh, Polycarp, again, early. He's born in 69, um, but a little bit later than Ignatius. He writes, Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal high priest himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, build you up in the faith and truth. And again, so Christ is God. Um, then the Holy Spirit, uh, a, you have origin. Um, we must understand, therefore, that as the Son, who alone knows the Father, reveals him to whom he will, so the Holy Spirit, who alone searches the deep things of God, reveals God to whom he will. And you see this identification with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus Christ and the Father. Um, so, again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time because I'm out of time, but um, you can look at these quotes. The early church affirmed and believed. In all of these quotes that I gave you, by the way, are before the Council of Nicaea. Um, so, the early church is very clear. The Bible teaches one God. The Bible teaches the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are God. Very clear. And that those are, they are distinct persons. Um, and so that is the Trinity. Next time we'll look at, um, we'll look at one of the main contenders, person who fought for the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and also uses his justification, the importance of the Trinity in doing so. So I want to save that for, for then. Um, let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you, uh, for the fact that you, chose to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we would grope in darkness were it not for your revelation. So we are so thankful that you have given us your word. We are thankful that even though there is a mystery to who you are, you have shown us clearly who you are. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, help us as we uh, grapple with deep, deep truths, um, protect us from error, and Lord, may we continue to be students of your word and students of who you are, that we might praise you uh, in a more effective and more meaningful way in our own hearts. We pray that you would help us to do that as we go to the worship service. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.